Today we continue our series uh, titled Be Transformed and we wrap up uh, chapter 7 which is really one of the more unique uh, as well as uh, controversial or different viewed passages in, in all the book of Romans. But I want to give you a big picture of where we're going uh, from 7. We're going to be covering 8, 9, 10, and 11 through the rest of this fall as a series. And these are some of the richest chapters in the scriptures in terms of what's there. Chapter 8, many have argued, is maybe the most uh, phenomenal and, and encouraging and, and amazing chapter in all the Bible, uh, some of the truths that are there that uh, have blessed Christians and encouraged them for years. And, and 9, 10, and 11 are some of the most challenging but foundational to chapter 8. So uh, these are some incredible uh, truths that we're going to be learning in the coming weeks and months. I just want to encourage you to uh, be engaged in your Bible, read these things, prepare them. They're life-changing truths that are vital to our health and growth as Christians and to our health and growth as a church. So today we're going to be at, uh, in chapter 7. If you have a Bible with you today, you can open it up to uh, Romans chapter 7. We're going to be starting in verse 14. If you're new to your Bible, there are some Bibles in the chairs in front of you. You can grab one. And, and in your worship guide, uh, there's a, a spot where you can follow along with the message today. The page number to this passage is there. I want to encourage you to open your Bibles if you have them or if you don't, grab one of those. We'll also have the passages on the screen. But I think it's really important you see where these are at so you can go back to them and refer to them uh, in the future. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump into this uh, passage a little bit in Romans chapter 7. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for these truths that guide us so faithfully uh, week in and week out. And, and Lord, I pray that as we uh, look at a passage like this in Romans 7, uh, that you would both uh, take the truth of this passage and, and the reality of it and your spirit and wield it to our hearts, Lord. Uh, solidify it in our minds uh, so that what you intended uh, your people to know uh, through Paul's pen and his, your Holy Spirit guiding him would uh, sink into our hearts as your church today, Lord. I pray as well that you would just make it known that, uh, that nothing is more relevant than your truth. That whether Paul penned it 2,000 years ago or we're reading it 2,000 years later, uh, the reality of it could not be any more true because it comes from the very God who created all things and knows us better than we know ourselves. So Lord, strengthen your church today. Lord, I pray you would speak to each individual person as only you can through your spirit and your word. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The well-known title, uh, uh, maybe not so much novel, but title of a, a book by Robert Louis Stevenson, uh, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, is a phrase that many people know about. Oh, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, people use it as a byword nowadays to describe how people's personalities can be one way one day and they can be totally different the next day. But most of us uh, don't know that the novel itself was written uh, about this passage that we're going to look at today. 
Robert Louis Stevenson was, uh, at least grew up in the church and, and around this, and, and this whole story is really a novel, a very short novel, if you've never read it, about 80 pages, uh, that you can read and, and, and get a picture of what, maybe what is an illustration of what uh, this passage talks about today. And, and if you know the story, uh, Dr. Jekyll, who's the main character in the story, or at least one of the main characters, is a doctor who is in good standing. He's a wealthy doctor, a well-known doctor, well-liked doctor within his uh, community, but he wrestles in himself with this split person within him. He says, there's a good person in me and, and there's a bad person in me that, that can do things that I, I don't want to associate with. And so as a doctor, uh, both a scientific doctor, he, he sets out to create a potion. He says, if I could just separate these two people, because if they could be set free from each other, they wouldn't torment each other. The good person wouldn't feel dragged down by what this bad person does and feel guilty, and the bad person would be set free from the moralism of the good person. They could each kind of go on and live their own lives and not live within this struggle of what he experienced going on inside himself. So he sets out to create this potion, and he finds this potion that when he drinks it, splits him into two people. At one point, he's Dr. Jekyll with all the good characteristics of Dr. Jekyll, and then when he drinks it again, he becomes Mr. Hyde or Edward Hyde, who is the epitome of all that was broken and evil in him. And, and what happens as the story goes on is he begins to realize that this Edward Hyde is much, much worse than he could have ever imagined. And as his life goes on, each time, what he does is he drinks the potion and, and during times when no one's going to be around or it's dark, he drinks it and, and becomes the hide in himself and, and does all that stuff. And then he drinks it again when it's time when people can see him and he's the Dr. Jekyll, the one that he wants to present to everyone else. But as time goes on, he realizes that he can't control Hyde anymore. And Hyde keeps popping up even before he takes the potion. He'll take the potion, he'll be Dr. Jekyll, and he'll take a nap, and he'll wake up, and he's Hyde, and he hasn't taken the potion. And Hyde becomes more and more prominent, more and more powerful, and pretty soon, Dr. Jekyll is just completely swallowed up to the point where he says, the only way I can get rid of Hyde is to kill him. And he sets out to commit suicide, to get rid of this evil presence within him. And here's a story that I believe captures, in a human sense, exactly what Paul is talking to us about today. And what happens in every one of us, even as Christians, if we're unaware of it. You see, we'll either live in denial as Christians of our issues, of this brokenness that still resides in us while we're here in this life. We'll deny that it's there. We'll pretend we're better than we are. And everyone else around us will see it but we'll be in denial of it. Or we'll live in discouragement. We'll think, oh, I'm never, maybe I'm not a Christian, I'll never get past this. I, you know, just sink to the depths and become ineffective altogether because of that. Or, like we're gonna see in this passage, there's another better way. We can live in hope. In hope of the deliverance that one day will come from this broken body. So as we look at this passage, I want to I start by just showing the principles that are in there. Three really important principles or observations as Paul talks about it. Because even in this passage, Paul really goes in three repetitive cycles of saying the same thing over and over again. But the third time he says it, he interjects some hope 
that changes everything is we relate to this struggle that goes inside us in this human broken body that we live in. So in your Bibles, if you have it open to Romans chapter 7, we're going to be in verse 14. And, and here's what I've done to kind of uh, break it up. You're going to see a problem in this passage. You're going to see proof of that problem when Paul talks about his struggle. He's going to talk about it in his own life. And then you're going to see a principle that comes from it. And he's going to say that three different times. Okay, it's a passage that until you see this pattern can kind of seem like Paul's all over the place. So what I've done is on the passages I put up here on the screen, I've highlighted each one of them in a different way. So I've, uh, if you bring up the, the first passage, you're going to see, I think I un, uh, yeah, in yellow is the problem that Paul's going to say is true. Then the, the underlined section is going to be his proof of it, how he describes it in his life. And then the non-underlined part is kind of the principle that Paul is going to draw out. And I'm going to read through the whole passage, but then we're going to break it down into those three parts. We're going to look at the problem, the, uh, the proof of it, and the principle that comes about. So he says, for we know that the law is spiritual. But I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Let me continue here, hang on. For I do not understand my own actions. So here's Paul displaying it out in his own. I don't understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Then he gives the principle. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Now he's going to come back to the problem. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but in, I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. Here's where he interjects. This is the change in the pattern. He says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Then he comes back to the problem. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So let's break this down and look at the passages individually. And I'm going to move through these principles uh, fairly quickly, so hang with me, because I really want to take uh, an extended period of time to focus on kind of the so what today. So what do we do with this? I can give you these truths, but if you don't really know what that means in your life, uh, it's not going to help you. It's going to leave you in the midst of your struggle. Understand as well that I'm not going to be able to cover everything that's necessary to move beyond this struggle today because all of chapter 8 is exactly Paul's answer to this. So if, if you're here today, I'm just telling you, you really got to come next week if you want the answers to that, okay? That's just a little teaser for you. First one, and we're going to break it down. So we're going to take all the problems, uh, verses, and put them together, the yellow one. So here's my first point for you. Sin's presence is not removed when I become a Christian. Sin's presence is not removed when I become a Christian. Now, chapter 6 told us that sin's power or its reign in our life is removed, meaning we are no longer under the reign of sin. We no longer have to give in to sin or fall under its authority, nor will it have the final say in our life. That's a done deal. 
Okay, we're not in that kingdom anymore. We're in God's kingdom as children of God. Now, it says we can go back and serve that master at times, and our pattern sometimes will lead us back there, but we're no longer under its authority. When all is said and done, everything you did for your old master is going to be left here when you die. All you've done is lost the opportunity to serve your new master, but your new master will take you when life is over. So you have to choose in that sense of that struggle who you're going to serve. Here we're talking about sin's presence. Just because its power is gone, its presence is not. Here's the verses Paul uh, uses in this passage to talk about this. He says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. So this is important to understand. I don't want to go into too much detail here, but Paul uses the term flesh, the Greek term sarx, multiple ways throughout the Bible. And it's important you understand which way he's using it. It's kind of like the word trunk. Okay, you can use a trunk to refer to an elephant's trunk. You can use it to refer to a big chest that you might store things in. Or you could use it to refer to the back of your car where you can store some things, a trunk. Same word, but it means different things. And if you don't understand the context in which it's being used, you're going to misuse the word. If I say, hey, I got jumper tables in my trunk, you're not going to go, why would he put his jumper cables in an elephant's nose? I mean, you're kinda, you, you understand the context tells you what it is. Well, here Paul is using uh, flesh in a very technical way. He uses it sometimes just to distinguish the physical from the spiritual, but also he uses it to talk about this fallen, broken body that we still reside in as humans, and our spirit is alive and new and born again as Christians, but our body is still the same old resident broken body that we will have as long as we're in this fallen earth. And that's our hope, that one day we'll have brand new bodies, and those bodies will finally do what we want them to do in the, in the way they should do, the way they were originally created to be. So he's saying that in my flesh, I'm sold under sin. Now, what Paul is probably saying here, and you have to go back to the first part of chapter 7 to, I think, confirm this, is Paul's not saying that he's a slave under sin. The, the word he uses here, sold under sin, is called a perfect passive. It's a Greek verb that's a past tense, but it's a past tense verb, that, an action that happened, but has ongoing implications. It's different than just a, a past tense action. It's like when Jesus says to telestai or, or it is finished, meaning this is done, but it has ongoing implications that stretch on forever. So he's talking about, I believe at that point, what happened in the person of Adam. He talked about that earlier in chapter 7. He talks about it earlier in, chap in Romans when he says that when Adam sinned, Sin entered the world and everyone sinned because everyone is a descendant of Adam, meaning we suddenly had fallen, broken bodies that no one escapes. Not one person was born except one. We'll talk about him later, though. That, that ever was outside of that bondage of being born into a broken body. So he's saying, I was sold under sin. It happened back when Adam sinned and its implications go on all the way to now. He's talking about this brokenness of our body. He says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. So he's not saying there's nothing good in me. My spirit is born again. Once you become a Christian, he's saying, but in this broken, fallen body that I reside in, nothing good resides in that. That's why he's so anxious to get rid of it. So I find it to be a law, he says, that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. It does. It's, it's like 
it's embodied, it's wrapped around you in some sense. You can't, ever have those days where you just wanna get rid of yourself? Man, if I could just shed myself of me, I'd be so much better. That's, that's the whole story of Jekyll and Hyde. It's a story of, of humanity while we're still in this broken temporal sense. The proof then is the next point. Here's my second point is I experience a battle against sin as long as I'm on earth. I experience a battle against sin as long as I'm on earth. We're going to see in these passages where Paul's talking about it is that Paul's using metaphorical language. He's attempting to portray the battle uh, within himself, not so much between different parts of himself. But this is the same thing that we do, right? We'll say, you know, you're on a diet and you see that, you know, that really good dessert there and you're saying, you know, my head is saying no, but my heart's saying yeah. Right, we always talk like that, but really what's going on is it's the same person. It's not like your head and your heart and your stomach, well, maybe they are disconnected for some of us, right? It's not like they're going against each other. You're just, he's using language to help us understand the struggle that goes on within us. So listen to how he puts it in these passages, the different ones that talk about that. Next slide, please. It says, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. So you see that struggle within him. He says, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. So Paul's using metaphorical language just to be honest about this struggle. Obviously, Paul's not saying he just went on as some evil person. We know that's not true. We see the outcome of his life, but he's being real about the struggle. Even as an apostle, he knew the, the presence of sin that was still around that he battled here in this earth. The next slide is, I think, the last little section. He says, for I delight in the law of God, meaning he loves God's truth in my inner being, but I see in my members, that's how he's referring to his body in a sense, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Paul is talking about this struggle. In fact, in the greater context of Romans 7, which is talking about our relationship to the law now, after being set free from it, he's saying, is the law bad? No. The law reveals our sin, but he's also here talking about our new relationship to the law. And one of the things that Paul's trying to draw out, uh, even bigger picture than just this struggle, is that as Christians, when we try to relate to God through the law, meaning the Old Testament law or just rules in general, when we try to continue to relate to God through the law, it exasperates our sin nature. Because that's what the law did. It reveals our sinfulness. It holds up a mirror to it. And, and when Christ came, one of the things he did is he fulfilled the law and he freed us from the punishment of the law and he gave us a new way to relate to God. We're gonna talk about that all through chapter eight. We'll touch on it a little bit here. But, but it is helping us saying, Christians, and we, we fall into this. This is our nature, even as Christians. Uh, I'm gonna create some rules and if I just follow these rules, then I'll be okay. But what happens is, is we set these rules and then they make us wanna do what's wrong. Just try it with your kids once. Tell them not to do something and they'll go and do that. You laugh, but you do the exact same thing when your boss says, do not do, not do this. What do you do? you start getting really close to that, saying, I'm gonna check out what, the, what he doesn't want me to do. 
And then you start doing the very thing that you know you shouldn't do. Paul's revealing that. We exasperate it when we do that. Galatians 5, 7. Paul says this in another chapter talking about this battle. He says, for the desires of the flesh, that's again that broken nature of us, are against the spirit. That's our inner new nature. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. This is a battle that still goes on inside us. We don't have to give in to it. Understand that. It doesn't excuse our behavior. Hear me very clearly. We are set free from the reign of sin. We never have to give in to sin. And we'll see, we can't use it as an excuse that we have this flesh, but the reality of its presence is still there. Do not think that becoming a Christian suddenly makes life easier. Honestly, I believe it makes it more difficult because suddenly you want to do something that's totally contrary to the broken sinfulness of this world. Now you have a strength to do it that you never had before, but suddenly you step into the battle. The moment you trust Christ as your savior and say, I'm gonna follow you. I wanna walk your path. Last principle is is the principle Paul says, uh, here is true then, and and we summarize it in several of them. Here's my, my point is my fallen, unredeemed body is the source of my personal struggle with sin. My fallen, unredeemed body is the source of my struggle with sin. Look at how Paul uh, puts it in several of these passages that we just looked at. He says, now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Now again, he's using metaphorical language in a sense to describe the battle, but he's also using language that's true in a sense that that's no longer you. Your old self, that old body, that is not you. At the same time, it is you. Right? You, can't, you can't say to your wife when you blew up at her, hey, that wasn't me, that was that old flesh guy that was here. You know, I, got, I talked to him, I got him out of here, we're good to go. No, you have, you have to go and apologize. Okay? You do, your physical broken body, has, it's still you there, but that's not who you are defined as anymore. Paul's trying to capture, obviously, a, a principle that can't be captured with just simple human words. He says, now, if I do, not, do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And then he says, alas, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? How, how am I going to escape this? We can be born again as people, but the fact is, we still live in the presence of sin. We still live with a body that's broken. We still live in a body that can be influenced by sin. You're going to die. You're going to get sick. That's, that's the same principle. The reason why Christians can still experience horrible things in their body here on earth is because your body is still fallen and broken. This is part of the problem of, of the beliefs of, of everyone should be healed if you're really following God or, or believing in him enough. The fact is, I'm not saying God doesn't heal. He certainly does, and he chooses to do that at times in the life of believers. But just think about the illogicalness of that. If God was always going to heal, then you would live forever in this broken body, and that's not his will. Paul says this body will be sown 
naturally in dishonor, meaning in brokenness, so that it can be raised in glory. You have to die for you to get your new body. It's just a a struggle that we are going to live with in this present world. So, Again, I want to emphasize Paul's bigger point is that I aggravate this battle when I try to grow spiritually through obedience to the law or rules rather than through a love relationship with the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, Let me just capture this a little bit. We're going to talk more about this in the chapter that comes because that's what it's all about. But when your flesh, when you, when you try to create rules to obey God or grow, and that's what that Romans is all about. It's about salvation, which is when we're converted or changed, and it's about sanctification, Christian growth. And Paul's saying the law couldn't justify you. It can't save you. You can't o- obey enough to be saved. So Jesus did that for you. But the law can't grow you either. You can't create enough rules to become spiritual. And here's why. Here's kind of what Paul's saying. When you try to use rules to grow as a Christian, it just aggravates your flesh. It aggravates your old nature. It's like a little boy with a stick poking at a bee's hive. Hey, this bee's hive is really quiet. I wonder what's in there. Let me just stick, poke at it a little bit. That's what the law, that's what rules do to our old sinful nature. And I want to show you two ways in which it does that. Here's two ways in which the law is insufficient uh, in terms of growing us in our brokenness. The first is you're going to always fall into one of two types of pride when you approach God and, and spiritual growth through laws and rules. The first is entitlement. This is when you create your rules and you begin to think that, that because of your obedience, you might follow your rules. And, and we always keep score differently than other people do, but we tend to score ourselves a little bit higher than we probably should, right? And, and when you start obeying and you say, man, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, a couple of things happen. One is you start thinking, look at these dirtbag Christians around me that aren't, aren't following as many rules as I am. Yeah, this is what happened even in Dr. Jekyll's life. Even in his perfection after his potion, he started realizing even when I was rid of Hyde, even his good self was still fallen because he started to feel self-pride in how great he was and how wicked Hyde was. Same thing happens to us. We become prideful, not only toward each other, but even towards God. See, when you begin obeying and following your rules, you start to have a sense of entitlement toward God. And you say, well, God, I- I've been doing this. I-, I haven't missed church in like three months. You owe me this job promotion. And, and-, and you owe me a good marriage. And-, and my finances should always be good, God, because, I mean, look at-, look at what I'm doing. Look at who I am. That's what following the law in relation to God does to us. It'll always stir our pride. It'll always aggravate our flesh. That's one side when you think you're doing better than you are. The other side is kind of the self-pity. We don't often see self-pity as being prideful. In fact, these people are the ones we go, oh man, they're such a humble spirit. I mean, woe is me. I just can't, I can't do anything. You know, the wretched soul I am, blah, blah, blah. blah. But here's what self-pity does. Self-pity, entitlement is, I, I, I deserve this because of my behavior. But self-pity says, I deserve better than my present circumstances because of something that I've done. They're, they're two sides of the same coin. 
The person that's always in self-pity, their pride is that they think they deserve better than what they got. That's still pride. And the law will always aggravate our sinfulness. We cannot approach God according to it. And that's what Paul is getting at in this whole passage. And his heart and his hope is, is in verse 25a. He says this at the end of it. He says, who will rescue us from this body of death? He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's our hope. It's Jesus that's going to save us from this body of death. And then he summarizes the principle again uh, of where we're at right now. But his point is, and he interjects that, is is Jesus is going to save us from it. That's who we focus on for our growth. That's what changes us. Romans 8, 20, and I'm I'm jumping forward, but I'm not going to do too much. Romans 8 captures this. He says, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. He's going back to the fall in creation and how it affected all of creation. And it was subjected, it says, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, that's us Christians, which just the first fruits is what we got right now. This is just the teeniest, tiniest little taste of what awaits us in eternity. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of of our bodies. Paul's recognizing that. Man, you're going to groan here because we're still stuck in this broken body. Inwardly, we've been changed. Inwardly, we have those first fruits, but outwardly, until we die, until we're finally resurrected, this is what we live in. Only one person will ever rescue us from this body. The law won't rescue us. It won't even be a good means for us to relate. And it's important to see that, that one person understood this struggle even better than Paul did, even better than we did. And one person experienced this struggle more than any other human being. And his name was Jesus. Now you might be going, you might even object, say, well, wait a minute, Chad, Jesus never sinned. He, how, how could he know this struggle? That's a great question. Understand that the struggle is not greater when you've given in to it. The struggle is greater when you resist it. Picture me holding a, a rack of weights, like a squat rack on my shoulders, and I'm here lifting it. If I collapse down and give in, is that harder and resisting more than if I push and hold the weight up and don't give in to the weight of that weight. It takes much more resistance to resist the pressure, the weight, than it does to give in like we do. And Jesus never gave in. Not once. He, he strapped on a human fleshly-like body. Not broken, but fleshly in the sense that the enemy itself and this world itself could actually get its fingers locked into him like it never could have when he was in eternity, when he was spirit, when he was in that state. 
And everything the world had, everything that Satan had, went after his flesh and clawed and ripped and pulled for 33 years. And he resisted every single time. And, and that's not even the greatest resistance. You see, Jesus didn't just resist, because we resist at times. We feel that. But imagine if you resisted perfectly every single time, only to know that after resisting perfectly every time, you are going to experience the consequences of one who never resisted. That you are going to feel the weight of all sin put on your shoulders, the very wrath and punishment of a just and holy father put on you even when you resisted. That's what Jesus did for you and me. That's what his life was all about. He was bound to a body that could, could experience this pain. Even though he resisted perfectly, it experienced the consequences of sin for you and me. And he did that so that you and I, who couldn't resist, who would fall into it, could know without a doubt that even in the presence of this struggle, when this body goes down, I can rest assured that it will be raised to a brand new life, to one that will never experience this struggle ever again. Jesus experienced that for you and me. He lived perfectly, and the most unjust thing that this world has ever known took place on that cross. His perfect resistance resulted in his unbelievable punishment so that you and I, who deserve that punishment, could know without a doubt that we will get the reward that he earned. So what do we take from this today? That could be discouraging in one sense of saying, so I'm stuck in this body? I mean, I've just, this is what I have to go through. I want to just give you two applications. There's an infinite number, and I didn't pick these for any particular reason, but I think they're helpful. One specific, one general. Let me give you just two simple ways in which we can apply this in our lives today. One is to, to get back to this idea that we're not saved by the law, nor do we grow spiritually by attempting to obey the law or any number of rules. The path to spiritual growth does not path, pass through path. That's my broken body. I didn't say that. It's just my fallen body that said that. Does not pass through the law or rules or any kind of righteousness in that manner. That's why as Christians, when we become very legalistic, churches, when they become extremely legalistic and, and bring rules front and center, you do got to do this, don't do this, they begin to die a very slow death because those things will never save you. They can restrain you, or at least try to restrain you. That's all the law can ever do is try to restrain you, but they can't change you. The law can't transform you. You need so much more than the law. I need so much more than the law. Even good rules, even though they might be helpful, when they're brought front and center, will do more damage than they'll do good. Let me give you an example. Let's say you're fighting pornography. That's a huge issue in our day, and I think a lot of us, even as Christians, face it 
in our own broken nature. Let me put some rules down. I got 10 steps I can do to fight pornography. I got this protection up and I got this rule and I got these guidelines. And, and hear me right now. I'm not saying that any guidelines or rules are bad or all of them are bad. That's not what I'm saying. I have some that I apply in my own life. So hear me very clearly. I'm not saying all rules are bad. What I'm saying is when that's your primary method, it will not work. Because what happens is every time you bump into one of those rules, it doesn't make you go, oh, that's right, that's wrong, I'm not going to do that. You just say, okay, I'm going to push that rule away. And it just, it like it aggravates you and you keep working. You'll do whatever you can to get around that rule because you aren't addressing the heart issue that's there. I want to propose a different way. Paul's proposing a different way. What if instead of approaching it through the rules, you approached it through your relationship with Jesus Christ? Instead of talking about your guidelines, you instead said, Jesus fulfilled this law for me. What does that look like for me who struggles with sexual immorality? And you start pondering what Jesus did. Jesus came down and he lived a perfect sinless life. Okay, what does that look like in regards to sexual immorality? Jesus never lusted once when he was here on earth. He, he probably saw some very beautiful women in the time that he even had women that ministered alongside him. But he loved them so purely that he saw them as people with God's dignity rather than as objects for his own pleasure. And not once did he lust after one person. Not only that, if that doesn't blow you away, I know guys you're going, dude, that just blows my mind. I can't even imagine that. I, I get it. But Jesus didn't even enjoy sex in a way that was legal or okay for him under God's law. See, in, in marriage, it's a gift to be enjoyed. He chose to not even enjoy it in that way. That's how much he resisted for you and me. And he resisted for you and me because his bride wasn't ready yet. He loved you and me so much that even in our mess, when he could have, I mean, he was God. He owns us. He could have used any one of us for his pleasure any way he wanted. He had that kind of power. And he chose not to. In fact, he even gave up his own rights as a human. Because you and I were still too messed up for him to have a, a deep, intimate relationship with. And so he said, instead, I'll lay down my life. And after doing that, after resisting any lust, after resisting even what was open and, and oh, impossible for him, instead of receiving the reward that he deserved for it, he was treated like the most grotesque sexual deviant this world has ever known. Every time I've ever lusted, every time you've ever given in to sexual sin, he was punished for it. And he willingly took that for you and for me. Not so that I could set up a whole bunch of rules, but so that my heart that by nature wants those things, 
could be totally changed, to not just set up some guidelines, but to begin to see the gift of sex, to begin to see the opposite sex the way he saw them. That even those ladies in those pictures that you and I may long to look at, instead of seeing them as an object for our pleasure, that the rules don't ever change that. They just say, I can't go and look at that. But Jesus stops and makes you say, that person is a real human being. She's someone's daughter. What if that was my daughter? Man, when you stop and begin to relate to God through this person, man, no law will have any meaning at all because you will live so far above what any law could be because that love will change your heart. The other thing I want to talk about, the other example, and I'll close with this, is more general. See, here's another important application, is that many Christians fall prey to the false teaching that the longer you're a Christian, the less you're going to struggle with sin. This simply isn't true. Yes, you, you may and you should as you grow give in to sin less frequently. That is a sign of maturing. But you'll never stop struggling. In fact, I believe it's more true that the longer you walk as a Christian, the greater the struggle becomes. Because as you're changed, as God little by little makes you holy, you begin to see the gap widen between what you're becoming and what you've been. And the fight gets stronger. It gets stronger because when you choose to grow, you choose to become a useful vessel in his hands. You put a target on your back in this flesh, this broken world, the ruler and God of this world, the enemy, wants nothing more than to take you out. And he'll go after your flesh in any way he can. And sometimes God lets him touch your broken flesh, even in a physical health ailment. He'll take his best shot at you. But you need to know that thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ. This body is not my final home. So be encouraged. The presence of a struggle is not a sign that maybe you're not truly a child of God. The presence of a struggle may be one of the best signs that you really are a child of God. Your problem is not the presence of a struggle. Your problem may be that the method by which you're approaching that struggle is not the method that God says will bring us victory. I'm so thankful that God gives us his word, that he doesn't just leave us in our struggle in chapter 7, but he brings the rich truths that Paul is going to open up to us in chapter 8. 
But what does it mean to walk in the Spirit? To walk in the Spirit of Christ, to live in the freedom that He purchased for us, and to relate to God through this wonderful, beautiful new manner in which He's given us in Jesus Christ, and not through the old one that never worked back then. Have you ever read this Old Testament? I mean, these people were messed up, and they couldn't, they couldn't ever follow. Nor can we when we try to approach God in the same way. Imagine, church, a body of people that, that, that aren't formed by rules and regulations and laws that just highlight our brokenness over and over again, but, but are shaped by a love that this world can never understand until they see it in the beauty and face of Jesus Christ. That's the church that God is shaping in you and me as we relate to him properly. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these truths. Thank you first and foremost for your son who wasn't just some religious guru who walked this earth that seemed to be totally separated from all of reality. He didn't glow and he didn't float. He lived just like we did. He had a body just like us, although it never knew sin. It felt the effects of sin more than most of us ever will because he felt the full weight of the consequences of sin in his life on that cross so that we who deserve the full weight might be set free from its punishment, might live differently. So God, forgive us for going back to an old way that never worked and was never intended to work, but was always intended to point to the one who would fulfill it for us, the one who would finally set us free from sin. We love you, Jesus, and thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.